0: Turn to the book of James, if you have your Bible or a Bible app, the outline is on the church app. James chapter 1, the text is verses 1 through 4, and um, today we're going to begin a new series from this book, the book of James, that I'm calling Faith in Action. Everyone say that, Faith in Action. And the awesome thing about this series is that the adults, the youth, and the children are going to be studying from the same text Concurrently. How awesome is that? Um, By the way, this was my son Julian's idea, and uh, it was a great idea, and uh, I thought the most practical book to do this would be the book of of James. This book is like the Proverbs of the New Testament, and you will uh, also notice some hints of the Sermon on the Mount and some Old Testament word pictures and references. By the way, there are 54 imperatives Uh, In other words, commands or pleas that are found in this book. So it's a very practical, say practical, book that teaches us practical Christian living. And by the way, Jesus is only mentioned twice in this book. The cross, the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection are not mentioned at all. So it's more practical than it is doctrinal. It's, It's faith in action. Everyone say that? faith in action it's putting our faith what we believe into practice how we live it's putting feet to what we believe it's it's outward demonstration of inner faith it's when the rubber meets the road the key verse in this book is chapter 1 verse 22 where james writes do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says say that do what it says This past December, uh, our grandson Jaden was born, and he has brought so much joy, so much joy into our lives, and I'm so blessed to hold him and and to kiss him and to love on him and uh, just such a joy. Uh, He makes uh, cute noises from both ends. And it's cute to see him sucking on a bottle, sucking on the pacifier. Um, cute to hear those uh, baby goo goo gagas uh, because uh, baby things are cute. But it wouldn't be so cute if Jaden is still doing those baby things when he's older, right? With age, you expect maturity, say, maturity. And it's the same way with a new believer. It's, it's a joy to see them come to Jesus and get saved. Uh, they're babes in Christ, but there should be growth. So spiritual growth should happen. It should happen. If, if you are a believer in Christ, spiritual growth should happen in your life. Write this down, 2 Peter 3.18. And Peter writes, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it says, let us go on to maturity. You say maturity. So, so if you're not growing, if, if you're a believer, and if you're not growing, then there's something wrong. So, so spiritual growth should happen, and I want to say this. You can grow as much as you want. Yeah? You can grow as much as you want. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, His divine power has given us everything. Say everything. everything. We need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So it's, up, it's all up to you how much you want to grow in your faith. Do you remember what Pastor Joey said in the sermon last week? He says the primary reason why people don't grow is because they don't want to grow. And the sad truth is there are a lot of Christians who are not growing in their faith. They're not exercising their spiritual muscles, which results in weak, immature Christian lives. And you see, the number one problem, I believe, in the church today is spiritual immaturity. In fact, I would say the most problems that Christians face stems from the lack of spiritual maturity. They they make immature decisions, do immature things that gets them to all kinds of trouble. Now, there are two reasons for lack of spiritual maturity in the lives of believers. The first reason is this, they're not taking personal responsibility for their Christian walk. I'm going to say it again. They're not taking personal responsibility for their Christian walk. In other words, they're not reading the Word. They're not praying. They're not going to church. They're not being held accountable. So they're not taking personal responsibility for their Christian walk. The second reason is because of weak, fluffy, poor preaching from the pulpit. There's no challenge. Bunch of stories. Uh, Pastors, preachers who only preach on love, peace, and joy. Now, please listen and hear my heart. I have nothing against preaching about love, peace, and joy. But but I want to be challenged, don't you? I want to be challenged. Hey, don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to hear so that I can grow in my faith in Christ. I want to have a strong walk with Jesus, not a weak walk. I, I want to put my faith into action. I want to have a worthy walk, not a wimpy walk. The title of my message today is Joy in Trials. Everyone say that. Let's first look at the author. Follow me now. Verse 1a, the first part of verse 1, it opens up with James. Say James. James. In ancient times, they would sign their name at the beginning. Unlike us, we sign our name at the very end, right? So we know it's James, right? We know it's him. But which James? Because there is more than one James found In the Bible. So follow me here. There's James, the disciple. He was the brother of John. Uh, They were known as the son of Zebedee, also known as the sons of, of Thunder. Now, it couldn't be this James because this James was murdered by Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And he was dead by the time this letter was written. So it was not James, the disciple. There's also James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the lesser. Well, it's not him either. And there's James, the father of Thaddeus, not him. And then you have James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, interesting, his name in the Greek is Yaakobos, which translates his Hebrew name, Yaakon, which means Jacob. So James, or you can even call him Jacob, the half-brother of Jesus, he's the author of this book. Now, we know that... uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. If you believe that, say amen. Well, I got to say this. Well, after Mary gave birth to Jesus, she later had normal offspring with Joseph. Now, I want to say this. The Bible does not teach the perpetual virginity of Mary as some religions do. And I'll prove it to you. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 to 56, there it tells us that Jesus had four brothers and he had sisters as well. Um, But it doesn't tell us how many sisters. I also want to point out that Scripture tells us that James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James, or Jacob, same name, okay, was not a believer during Jesus' life. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says this, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So he didn't believe in the Messiahship, of Jesus Christ but after witnessing Jesus resurrection as it says in 1 Corinthians 15:7 his life was transformed and he became a believer and you see and I love this Jesus became more than his sibling Jesus became his savior James his life was so transformed that he became a church leader and he was the head or, or the pillar of the early church in Jerusalem. And what he does, he takes over for Peter. Peter was not the first monarch, monarch, excuse me, of the church James was. Also, in Acts chapter 15, it was James who settled the issue of law and grace. And he was known for his practical wisdom, for his religious devoutness, and was a man who believed in the power, say power. He believed in the power of prayer. And because of his habit of always kneeling in prayer, his knees became callous like camel's knees. and He became known as the man with camel knees. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, in his writings records that James was martyred in A.D. 62 by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they threw him off the top of the temple. And since that did not kill him... They began to stone him and then beat him to death with a club. It is said, friends, listen now, that his last words before he died was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now notice his autobiography. Verse 1b. He says, A servant, a servant or bondservant of God and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now James could have easily opened this letter differently. He could have said, James, the younger brother of the Messiah. But he didn't. And what I love about James is that James was not a name dropper. Instead of making himself sound special, he says, a servant, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm a servant of my brother because he's my Lord. How awesome is that? A servant Bond-servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how James introduces himself. In fact, if you read Paul's letters and you read Peter's letters, they also introduce themselves in the same way. In the Greek, the word servant is the word doulos. The Greek word servant is doulos, and it means bond-slave. It's the idea, friends, of of one who is completely owned by master. One in permanent servitude to another. It has, in other words, it has no rights and it has no privileges of his own. He is under the complete control, complete control of his master. Now listen. After seven years of being a slave, that slave could be released. But if he voluntarily, listen now, chose to stay a slave because he loved his master, because his master was good to him, a ritual would take place. And that slave would be taken to his master's doorpost, and there his earlobe would be placed on the doorpost, and they would put a hole in the earlobe and put an earring on his ear, which signified that that slave was a slave for life. It meant that he loved his master, It meant that he was committed to his master. It meant this, that he was voluntarily sold out to his master for life. That being said, the word doulos implies a couple of things. First of all, it implies obedience. Write that down. Say obedience. Now, if you're saved, say amen. If you said amen, you are a servant. Listen now, You are a slave of Jesus Christ. Because before you got saved, this is now, before you got saved, you were a slave to sin. You were a slave to the devil. And you see, you were set free from that kind of slavery to become the slave of another. You just exchange who you're going to be a slave of. You have changed masters. Your new master now is who? Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. Go home and read that. Because that whole chapter, okay, the whole theme is you are now a slave, a servant of Christ. So if you're saved, then that means that you are obedient to your master. That's what it means, okay? And that master is who? Jesus Christ. And remember what Jesus said, friends, in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, Jesus said this, if you love me, you will, not my, you will obey, say obey, my commandments, So if you're saved, then your life should be marked by obedience. You obey Jesus. Obedience, say obedience, will keep you close to the one you love. Dulos also implies humility. Not only obedience, but also humility. To say that you are a, listen, to say that you're God's slave is a humble term. And you're not thinking about your own rights. Instead, you're thinking, I've got responsibilities. That's what you're thinking. And friends, the only greatness you can ascribe to is to become God's slave, God's servant. And what Jesus said, Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The greatest position you can ever attain to in life is to be God's sold-out servant, God's sold-out slave, one who is fully and completely committed to God. So question, that being said, question. To what extent can you honestly say that you are a slave, that you are a servant of God, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ? To what extent have you surrendered your life as his instrument? And can you say unreservedly, here I am, Lord. I'm completely owned and controlled by you. I'm fully committed and dedicated to you. You're my master and I'm your slave. Can you say that? Obedience and humility. Notice his audience. Follow me now. Look at verse 1c. To the 12, what, tribes... Scattered among the nations. So he's writing to 12 tribes, the Jewish Christians who've been dispersed outside of Israel. And you see, James had a heart for Jewish believers, that that was his focus. Now, now I got to say this there is no such thing as the lost tribes of Israel. Okay? You got it? The Bible never says that. God knows who they all are, and they all show up in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. 12 tribes, 12,000 per tribe equals what? 144,000. I also want to point out that the scattering of the Jews to the known world was a blessing to the gospel. Now, you might remember this when we did the book of Acts, right? Right? In the book of Acts, the Jews were kicked out of Israel and forced to go to places such as what? Asia Minor, Rome, Corinth, uh, Athens, Pontus, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. And it was, listen, it was that scattering that paved the way for the gospel. Now, now, get this. The greatest spreads, I love this, the greatest spreads of Christianity have been under persecution and scattering. Write this down, Acts 1-8. You might remember this, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power, say power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all the Judea and Samaria and what? And to all, and to the ends of the earth. Did you get that? And to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter eight, verse one and verse four. Write that down, Acts eight, verse one and verse four. And Saul approved of their killing him. Speaking of killing Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is what verse 4 says. Those had been scattered. Love this. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Whenever God permits scattering of his children... He has a purpose for it. Now, look at verse 1D, the last part of verse 1. <coughs> James writes greetings. Say greetings. Literally, in the Greek, that's rejoice. And here, James is writing to, to believers who've been scattered abroad. We know that, right? Scattered abroad. And he says to them, Rejoice. He's speaking to a group of believers who are going through a time of testing, tough trials. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Amen. We have no control over the things that happen to us and to those around us. But we do have control and complete control, should I say, on how we we respond to our trials. You see, how we respond to them determines our spiritual growth or lack thereof. So three points from our text today. If you're ready, say yes. Here we go. Number one is the rejoicing in trials. The rejoicing in trials. Look at verse 2 with me. James writes, consider it, or your Bibles might be render it as, count it pure joy, brothers, my brothers, whenever you face trials. And I want to stop there, okay? we'll stop there. Okay? Now, now I'll be honest. Is that what you want to hear? Is that what you want to hear when you're right smack in the middle of a trial? Is rejoice. Rejoice and consider it pure joy. Is that what you really want to hear? Huh? And I want to tell you, friends, it is listen, it isn't natural, it isn't natural to find joy in tough times. But James is not talking about a natural response here. James is talking about a supernatural response made possible only by the Holy Spirit who enables us to see and respond from God's point of view. Hey, what's the second manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22? It says, listen now, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and Joy. Joy. Joy, joy. And that only happens when you and I are under the control of the Holy Spirit. Someone said joy is a flag that flies over the castle of our hearts announcing that our King Jesus Christ is in residence today. So joy is not happiness or jolliness. Rather, it's a constant flow of God's Holy Spirit in us and through us. So the only way we have joy in the midst of difficult times is by being under control, under the control or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Look at the text again. Consider it or count it pure joy. Okay, not feel it, not feel it, but count it. Say count it. Count it, it's a financial term. And it means to, to reckon Or to evaluate. In other words, friends, you're evaluating it to to be all joyful. Now listen. You're not joyful for the trial. We know this, right? You're joyful what? In the trial. That somewhere, say somewhere. Somewhere down the line, it's going to work out for your good and for your benefit. You're rejoicing in the Lord in spite of your circumstances because of the fruit it's going to produce in your life. Now, now get this. Okay, get this. The trial is working for you, not against you. I'm going to say it again. The trial is working for you, not against you. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to evaluate our trials in light of God's purpose. So be a student, not a victim. Got it? So the text says, consider it or count it pure joy. So it's an attitude, a decision, not a feeling. It's it's the byproduct of a choice. This should be our conduct. This should be our way of life. This should be our response in the midst of trials. Now get this. Life is 10%, 10% what happens to us And 90% of how we react and respond to it. You know, I'm thinking about Paul in the book of Philippians. Right? And thinking about that, the concept of rejoicing or joy in the book of Philippians appears 16 times. Now, I want to remind you, when Paul wrote this book, the book of Philippians, he was in prison. He was not in a five-star hotel by the poolside sipping on iced tea. The guy was in prison, and he writes in Philippians 4:4, 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You remember Paul and Silas in prison in Acts chapter 16? It was midnight, say midnight. Because midnight, is a midnight, okay, is the darkest time of the night. And at midnight. They started singing praises to God. Huh? Hey, they were in stocks, okay? They were beaten bruised, bleeding, and they were singing praises to God. They weren't sulking. They were singing. And they didn't sing to get out of prison, okay? They sang because they were free in Christ. So I want to say this. Anybody can sing praises when things are going good right? Anybody can sing praises when things are going good. When you got money in the bank and food in the fridge, when you got have a good hair day, yeah? It's easy to sing praises to God when your kids are, are behaving and when your iPhone has no issues, when your car has no issues. It's easy to sing praises to God. But what about when things are not so good, There are those who don't sing and blame God and walk away from God. And there are those who sing and bless God and walk closer to God. So joy is not automatic. It's not a feeling. It's something that you count. It's a choice to rejoice. It's a deliberate act of faith. So what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Rejoice in the trial. Not not for it, but rejoice in the trial. And, And why are we to rejoice in the trial? Why? Because we need to understand something that down the line, somewhere down the line, don't know when, somewhere down the line, God is working something out for us. We may not see it, feel it, understand it, but somewhere down the line, God is working out something for my good and for his glory. Okay, so that way I can rejoice in the trial. Got it? Number two, the reality of trials. One, the rejoicing in trials. Number two, the reality of trials. Look at verse two with me. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever, circle that word whenever, not if, but whenever, whenever. You face trials of many kinds. Circle many kinds. Circle whenever and circle many kinds. Now notice James didn't say, if by any chance that you face a trial. Didn't say that. If by any chance that you suffer as a Christian. He didn't say that. He says, whenever. Whenever. Which tells me that he assumes this experience to suffer to be a natural thing. That Christians should go through trials is a natural thing. That's just part of life. Now listen, the believer who thinks that the Christian life is easy is in for a rude awakening. That being said, I want you to follow me now. Here we go. Trials, fill in the blanks, trials are inevitable. Inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Look at the text. Whenever, not if, right? So in other words, they're going to happen. I want you to breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe out. That qualifies you for having trials in life. Okay? You cannot get away from that. They're going to happen, so expect them. Verse 1c, let's go back to verse 1c. It says this, to the 12 tribes, what? Scattered among the nations. Scattered, not sheltered. First Peter 4, 12. Write it down. It says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. He's talking to Christians here. At the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said this in this world. Uh, do you live in this world? Yeah. In this world, you will not might. You will have trouble. Second Timothy two three writes. Paul writes. Endure hardships with us. Hardships with us, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. John Newton, in his song, Amazing Grace, one of the phrases says, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Three for sure's in life. Death, taxes, and trials. Friends, you are either in a trial, getting out of a trial, headed for a trial, or married to a trial. I don't know. But they're inevitable. Trials are also, here we go, universal. Everybody has them. Rich, poor, every ethnic group, good people, bad people, Christians, non-Christians have them. Matthew 5.45. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. They're universal. Trials are inevitable. Our universal here we go trials are unpredictable. We know that they're going to happen, but we don't know when they come unannounced. And people say, "I don't have time for trials. I don't have time for pain." And I say, "I don't know about you, but I've noticed that trials and pain has a way of not asking for permission. Right? It just shows up. It's unpredictable." And then finally, trials are variable. Write that down. Say variable. The text says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The King James used the word manifold. That literally means multicolored. So trials come in all types of packages, all shapes, all sizes, big, medium, small, Small ones, some last longer than others, some shorter than others, friends. It has many faces, various kinds, such as mental, mental trial. Some of you struggle with insecurity. Well, guess what? Moses did. Some of you struggle with depression. Guess what? Elijah did. Some of you are bipolar. David was. If you you read David's writings, it's like, One moment he's saying, hallelujah, and the next moment he's saying, this is horrible, God. I'm in the pits. This is the worst day of my life. That was David. How about physical trials? Pain, disease, cancer. Well, you're not alone. Job faced physical trials. Paul faced physical trials. How about spiritual trials? Where you agonize over spiritual matters where it's perhaps guilt that's not properly dealt with or or unconfessed sin, or perhaps it's doubts. Doubts. Did you know that when John the Baptist was in prison that he doubted that Jesus was the Messiah? And when he was in prison, he asked his disciples, go and ask Jesus if he is truly the Messiah. He doubted. Doubts. How about relational trials? Perhaps it's your marriage, perhaps a friendship, perhaps it's family, perhaps a financial trial. You're having a hard time making ends meet, and once you meet those ends, someone moves the ends again. How about vocational trial? Can't find a job, or you have a job, but it's not working out. There's a wide variety, friends, of trials. Why? So you and I don't get bored. That's why. So far, James tells us how to respond to our trials. He says, rejoice, right? And the reality of trials. And now he tells us, love this, he tells us the benefits of responding that way, which brings us to point number three. Here we go is the reason, or you could say also the purpose for trials. The reason for trials. Now, before we look at that, I want us to understand. Uh, types the different types of suffering because it puts us in its perspective, okay? First of all, fill in the blank. You have common suffering, okay? We're human. We live in a fallen world, right? Therefore, we have corruptible bodies. The flesh wears out. Man, I'm 57 years old. And I'll tell you, when I hurt myself, injure myself, it takes forever to recuperate. But that's just life. We live in a fallen world, our flesh is wearing out. These are what we call our lowly, as Paul says, our lowly bodies. So you have common suffering, then you have carnal suffering. That's when we do stupid things and we make stupid decisions. And friends, we're disobedient and we're rebellious. and Because of that, that causes suffering. So you have common suffering, carnal suffering, And then now you have Christian suffering. Okay? And this is when, you got to get this now, this is when we as believers, got to get this, suffer by the will of God. And that's implied right here in the text. The fact that James says... Count it all joy and that Peter says, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, implies, implies that Christians can suffer in the will of God. So let's look at the reason or the purpose for suffering. Look at verse 3. Because you know that the testing, or you can also write above that, proving of your faith. I want to stop there. Okay? Testing means Approval. Testing means approval to prove, okay, the authenticity or the worth of something. So the idea is a test, not to see if you fall, but to prove that you can stand. So when a Christian faces trials, friends, the authenticity and the worth of his or her faith will begin to surface. First Peter 1 7. These have come what trials suffering pain these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed Job 23:10 but he knows the way i take love this when he has tried me i shall come forth as gold What's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Tough times show how real our faith is. Listen, tough times doesn't necessarily build our faith. It reveals our faith. It's like that old saying, people are a lot like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until you dip them in hot water. Same thing. Same thing. Tough times show how real, how authentic our faith is. Okay? Now I want to say this. When your faith is being tested, that's a good thing. Look at your your neighbor and say, that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Because it's God's vote of confidence in you. He knows you can handle it. Otherwise, otherwise, he would not have allowed that trial, that testing in your life. So it should be an honor Say, say, honor, to go through the testing of your faith. I love this saying. Love it. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he always keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. Go back to the text. Because you know that the test, testing or testing, or, testing or, pre- or proving of your faith develops perseverance or slash patience. In the Greek, the word perseverance is hupomone, hupomone, okay? It means endurance. It means steadfastness. It literally means to to bear up under a load. It means the ability to stay under pressure, uh, to, to hang on. It means, love this, to never, never, never give up. And you see, James is talking about the perseverance, the patience to go through the trial rather than running from the trial. You don't bail out. You're not looking at your trials as disappointments, but rather as God's appointments. Listen, you don't stop following and you don't stop serving Jesus because life gets hard. And unfortunately, There are too many Christians, when life gets hard, when life is tough, they stop following Jesus, they stop serving Jesus, they stop coming to church. And it's sad. If you're saved, say amen. Amen. No matter what happens or how tough or bad life may be right now for you, hang in there. You got to hold on because God has something in store for you. And let me say this, don't try, don't try to get out of your trials prematurely. You got to hang in there. And you will only, listen. why? Because you will only develop perseverance by going through tough times. By going through tough times. You don't get perseverance by reading a book. You don't get it by praying a prayer. You don't get it by listening to a sermon. You only get it by going through the trial. You got to go through it. Moses learned it by 40 years in the desert. Job learned it by losing a lot. Paul learned it by continual hardship. You see, there's a process. I love that word, say process. Gotta remember this, okay? Through this whole series, the process, say process. There's a process that's involved in your trials. You can't forget about the process in your trials. There's a process that's involved in your trials, and you need to get this now. You need to stick, stick with the process because there's a result of sticking with the process. Well, what's that result? I'm glad you asked. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, there it is, and complete, not lacking anything. The final product, listen, friends, is to rise to maturity, to be fully developed. And I love that saying, the saying that says, God is far more interested in your character than He is your comfort. And that's true, He is. And when you value your comfort more than your character, you won't be able to count it all joy. On the other hand, friends, if you value your character more than your comfort, you will be able to say or to say it simply count it all joy. God wants a finished product. That's what he wants, okay? that He wants a finished product that is mature. He wants a finished product that's, that's complete. And he uses the trials of life for our spiritual benefit. That's his way of maturing us. That's his way of developing, fully developing us. God's goal, say say God's goal, is to make us mature, to grow us up. So, So the next time you say, why God, remember these reasons, to test your faith to produce perseverance in you, to make you mature, to make you complete, not lacking anything. So cooperate and submit to the process. Well, what's the lesson? Here's a lesson. I love it. Don't run from growing up. Say that. Don't run from growing up. Cooperate and submit and stick with the process. Sad but true, there are Christians who are going through a trial and it becomes so difficult and so hard for them, the trial is so hot that they bail out in the middle of the trial. They don't stick with the process. Therefore, they never get the blessings of what God has for them down the line. You need to stick with the process. Hey, I understand that trials are tough. I get it. There have been times where I, I've thought about bailing out, but it's not a good thing. But we gotta stick with the process. And unfortunately, there are those who run from growing up. And I get it. Some trials are just they're hot, they're fiery, they're tough. They hurt, they're painful. But we must stick with the process. I want to share with you a story. It's called Listen to a Teacup Tell It Story, and I hope I won't cry reading it to you. There was a time when I was a red lump of clay. My master took me and he, he rolled me and he patted me over and over and over. I yelled out, let me alone. But he only smiled and said, not yet. And then I was placed on a spinning wheel. Suddenly I was spun around and around and around. Stop it! I'm getting dizzy, I said. The master only nodded and said, not yet. Then he put me in an oven. I'd never felt such heat I wondered why he wanted to burn me and I yelled and knocked on the door and I could see him through the opening and I could read his lips as he nodded his head he said not yet finally the door opened and he put me on a shelf and I began to cool that's better I said And then suddenly, he grabbed me, and he brushed me, and he began to paint me all over. I thought I would suffocate. I thought I would gag. The fumes were horrible. And he just smiled and said, not yet. And then suddenly, he put me back into an oven, not the first one, but one twice as hot. And I knew that I was going to suffocate. And I begged And I screamed and I yelled. And all the time I could see him through the opening, smiling and nodding his head. Not yet, not yet. And then I knew that there was no hope. I knew that I wouldn't make it. I was just ready to give up when the door opened. And he took me out and he put me on his shelf. Then an hour later, he came back. He handed me a mirror. He said, look at yourself. And I did. And I said, that can't be me. I'm beautiful. Whatever trial you're facing, don't grumble. Don't gripe. Don't give up. Grow up. Because in the midst of your fiery trial, God is making something beautiful in your life. Amen.